Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Thanks, Wayne. And uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, really glad you're here this morning. And uh, again, as we say every week, a huge hi to our online audience, wherever you might be listening or watching today. Well, we're in our third week in this series out of the book of Romans called Back to Basics. So I'm going to ask you to open up the scriptures, please, and turn back to Romans chapter 1 and either open it up or turn it on, either or, and we're going to walk through this together today. I was trying to think of an illustration that would reflect what we're about to experience today, and I came up with four quick ones. Today's passage, to be honest, is difficult. It's very difficult to read. It's a difficult thing for us as believers and seekers. It's difficult for our culture. It violates a lot that we hold very dear in our culture. So the images I was given this week is this. This is like putting yourself on the scale and finding out how much you really weigh. This week is like uh, sort of getting naked in front of a mirror and really being honest about who you really are. Uh, It's like going to a dentist that you don't want to go to, but you know you need to, but you're not sure what's going to happen, and you hear, yeah, sort of like that. It's like going to the doctor for news, because what Paul does today is he moves us from a great high to actually quite a low for a reason. And so my prayer for myself and our community and you watching and listening online is that you'd have the ears to hear and the heart to be open, as Alan was leading us, a very similar theme, to hear what the living God really wants to say to us today. Because today's passage is wonderful, it's needed, it's God-inspired, but it's difficult. We ended last week with these words in Romans chapter 1. Paul proclaimed these profound words, the bedrock of every church ever since. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he wrote, because it has the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the non-Jew. For a gospel, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is being revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last, just as it's been written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul has been saying to this community, and we've been involved in this, he's been saying, look, I can't wait to hang out with you, to build you up. God is so amazing that he loves us, that he's given us the gospel, the good news. He's reminded us that God is in the right, and when we met Jesus, he even makes us right, even though we were so wrong. And then he reminded us last week that at the end of time, he's going to make all things right. Here's the words that describe so far. Friendship. Uh, Freedom, community, hope, salvation, power, deliverance, restoration, righteousness. We for two weeks have been moved. We've been inspired. We've been shown truly faith, hope, and the greatest, of course, is love. But then everything changes in a moment. Suddenly, verse 18 hits us like like a gut punch. It almost actually seems like a car has lost control and we're heading towards a tree, but that's not the case completely. Paul, with great intention and pastoral and prophetic insight, announces the most difficult of news, that God's wrath, not just his salvation, is real. And it's on every single person who has been touched by, participated in, or lives in and through sin. This truly, what we're about to read, is an indictment against the whole human family. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and part of 3, Paul is about to say all of humanity, all of us, very good, good, bad, terrible, dangerous, religious, non-religious, men, women, children, all of us are under, listen, the wrath of God. Paul says the righteousness of God has been revealed in salvation, yes, but his wrath also has been revealed. Salvation and wrath are two sides of the gospel. You must have one so the other one is authenticated. But there's more. What we're about to read reminds all of us, that's we who are Christians, 
that we believe in a personal act of God, not someone or something or something out there that just sort of put the universe into motion and walked away. No, no. Our God is a personal being. He is interested and he is always intervening in the course of human history in all kinds of ways. And so today's passage bows us low and brings us up, yet for all of us, this passage, especially as North Americans, is so very difficult because it is about to violate, listen, our modern notions of God, our modern democratic view of personal rights, our view of sexuality, our view of human orientation, and our view of fairness. And so, like I said, may all of us here and listening, and listening online and present, actually have an open heart to hear what God has to say. Let's start where we always need to, not with us or our culture, but with God. Chuck Swindoll, writing on Romans chapter 1 and thinking about God, again, summarized this whole conversation so well when he said this. He said, you know what? The God of today's making looks more like a hand-picked, pathetically passive father than the almighty creator who genuinely cares about his creation. People today don't want a God they fear, supposing that he would be more loving than the one who gets upset when people don't please him. Being a passive, hand-wringing God who cannot be angered is not one, though, I would characterize, he writes, as loving. A God of love must hate anything that harms what he loves. A God of love must take action to protect innocence against maliceness. A God of love must mean business when he declares an action off-limits. After all, a law without consequences isn't a law at all, right? A God of love must also have the capacity, whether we want it to or not, of anger, However, wrath that we're about to read about of God is not sort of this, this, this bellowing anger that is associated with abusive people in our lives. Paul describes the Creator's response to sin using a Greek word that means upsurging. When used to describe wrath, it is a passionate expression of outrage against wrongdoing. And in this context, it actually pictures the passionate upsurging response of God as his wrath literally crests over the walls of heaven and spills down on humanity and all of, his worth, all of earth. His wrath is without question fearsome, but it also is controlled, deliberate, measured, and it is, hear this, utterly just His wrath is nothing less than a reasonable expression of his own righteous character and his unfailing love when confronted with evil. It's been a long habit of humankind to trade the one true living God for one of our own making. Our fallen nature truly prefers a creator who does not hold us accountable for wrongdoing and passively just waits for us to sort of get sick of our sin and come home. But God is not just a passive parent. He will hold us accountable for our sin. Whether we acknowledge his presence or not, he writes, he is coming. And the consequence of us rejecting him in favor of sin or something else is far graver than anything we can imagine here today. And so Paul brings the bad bad side of the good news. He, without fear or blushing, says, because the righteousness of God has actually been revealed. Now then, he says, the wrath of God, verse 18 is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of all people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. As mentioned, the word or phrase, wrath of God, must be understood in Greek. There are two words to describe wrath. The first one is where we get our modern word thermometer from. It implies red-hot anger. It's impulsive. It's passionate. It flies off the handle. It indiscriminately lashes out at people, even those who are innocent. This is not our God. The second, as Chuck Swindoll told us, means settled, it's controlled, it's not emotive, it is not driven, here it is, by ego, it's driven by 
justice. And so Paul says that this wrath is being revealed. It's all over human history. It's over all people that have lived, will live, or ever will live. All of us stand under justice and a fair sentence before the true and living God. But this will not be fully experienced until the end of history. So the wrath of God is being revealed against godlessness, Paul says, and wickedness. Now, godlessness is an interesting word. Godlessness means to fall back from, to shrink from. It's attitudes and actions of not or non-reverence. The description points to a lifestyle of irreverence, which leads to unknown or known contempt of God himself. Wickedness is a whole nother ballgame. Wickedness simply means to violate God-given law. As I shared in our Ten Commandments series, the laws of God reflect God himself. Do not forget this. God did not just wake up one day and go, hmm, I don't think I like murder today, or lying, or stealing. The Ten Commandments are not laws separated from God. They emanate from his very nature. They are truly divine DNA. When you see the Ten Commandments, you are seeing the very character of God himself. He says no to murder because he's a life-giving God. He hates stealing because he is a generous, gift-giving God. He rejects adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. He says no to idols and other gods because he is truth and they are false. They are human or demonic attempts to replace him who is in living truth forever. And then Paul says these words that offend us so deeply, especially as Canadians. He says, and we're all suppressing this truth. This image paints a picture of humanity trying to keep a lid on a container, but what's inside is bursting out. It's active, by the way. It's not passive. It's ongoing. It's aggressive. It is saying yes to everything and everyone else other than God. One pastor preached it this way. This is much like a little boy who smuggled his dog into his room to spend the night. Ever been there? And when he heard his parents coming, he put the dog on his toy box, sat on the lid, and tried to talk to his parents while the thump, thump, thump of the pet was trying to get out. That's the image of humanity. And by the way, did you notice? That's just verse 18. Paul has said, this is over all of us. And the implication of the next three 23 little words will override all excuses, all ideas, all ideologies, all of human thought and history. Paul quickly moves again. Before any of us in this place can yell out, that's not fair, or that's not right, he then points to reality. He points actually to the created order, what theologians call general revelation. The idea that God is not knowable or we're so limited in capacity and and God is so vast, we really don't know who he is or what he wants, is outright rejected right here. Paul says in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain, not just to them, to us, because God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that, here it is, people, all people, are without excuse. He says, hey, everyone, you want an honest dialogue? Fine, it's plain. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. You don't need to be a great intellect, have three PhDs to see or understand God. He has shown himself. His his acts are, are definite, powerful. They are unequivocal. The knowledge of God has been made known to all of us. We cannot know everything about God and nature, 
But we can know he is a creator. He's a God of order. He's an artist. He's a moral God. From the order of the universe itself to all cultures, think about this, having a shared moral code that has never been taught, our desire to worship something or something else, God's invisible qualities are clearly shown. Observation says yes. Moral insight says yes. Spiritual intuition says yes. Thinking about that order issue, one wrote these words, noting the order and design of the universe. And as we explore it more, we begin to see how profound it is. Kepler, the modern uh, founder of astronomy, discovered the three planetary laws of motion. He's the originator of the word satellite, said an undevout astronomer is mad. David would put it this way in his Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show his handiwork. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Natural revelation, Paul says, is real. But it has, here it is, a limited purpose. Paul says all people have heard. And so all people are without excuse. No one is going to face the living God and say, but you didn't tell me. You didn't show me. And if that's not chilling enough, another wrote these words. The results of natural revelation are actually negative. Most times we point to these arguments to prove the existence of God, and that's important and true. But actually, he is saying in this point, natural revelation is an act of condemnation. Yet he also says we must recall the larger purpose of Paul in writing this in Romans. Listen, he is showing why revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel is necessary because all people are locked under sin's power and are helpless to free themselves from its grip. The drastic step God took in the gospel, sending his son Jesus to die on a Roman cross, would surely be unnecessary if rescue was available somewhere else. Paul is saying to us through the scriptures, natural revelation shows us enough of God to know who he is and what he's about, yet we still walk away, and that is why Jesus had to come. You cannot find salvation in nature. It just doesn't happen. So from wrath to the anatomy of misdirected and outright unbelief, Paul then just shows us what the human family looks like, just so you know, everyone, we're on the scale right now. Verse 21 through 31 is dominated by a three-part sequence where humanity, all of us, exchange God for other things. In each case, humanity will put their trust in themselves or other gods or sin, and they'll replace God. The first exchange, Paul says, happens through the act of idolatry. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor did they give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We, we, have, we, we have not done, Paul says, what we were made to do, to, to know God, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. No, no, our thinking, our worldview, he says, has become dark. We've become foolish. We've become, what theologians say, totally depraved. Sin touches every part of our life. We're not utterly depraved. We're not the farthest extent of evil, but our mind is darkened. Our will is darkened. Our emotions are darkened. Our bodies are darkened. Our world is darkened. The reading of the charges continue. Although they claim to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like people, birds, animals, and and reptiles. We've trusted in ourselves, Paul says. We thought we were so good and so smart and so wise. But then the Bible says, no, no, you've just become fools. Now, just so you know, the word fool is where we get our modern word moron from. So let me read this again. Humanity are morons. But for us, moron or fool doesn't have the punch 
that it used to. A moron's the life of the party, right? Someone who makes stupid mistakes or isn't, you know, the sharpest tool in the tool shed. That's not what it means here. See, I relearned this week the power of the word fool. In Greek and Hebrew culture, one wrote, they took fool far more seriously than we do. In Hebrew language, there are four terms that qualify the foolishness of a person. Each successive term, like Lego, builds upon the qualities of the previous one. Now think about this. According to the Jewish mindset, the greatest fool of all time is the disobedient person who possesses the greatest intelligence and knowledge. The first meaning just means lacking knowledge or practical experience, mentally sluggish. Then you move to the second one, which means being callous to the moral implications of foolish choices. The third one's worse. It's a willful decision to be close to wisdom and, and just not caring that you or others are being hurt. And lastly, fool is a person that incorrigibly and willfully rebels against God. And so basically Paul says the family made in the image of God have become fools. Willful ignorance of God leads to clever imitations of God, which ends up in wholesale replacement of God. The created versus the creator is now worship. The corruptible instead of the incorruptible. The temporal instead of the eternal. The earthly, the fleshly, the animal instead of the heavenly spiritual maker. And so instead of worshiping the living God, instead of being in relationship and recovering what was lost with Adam and Eve, uh, with our creator, we have worshiped the created and we have said something to heaven. We think it's good. And who are you? Men, birds, animals, reptiles. Don't miss that little phrase, that order. This list actually shows a progressive deterioration. This is the exact reversal of God's created order in Genesis 1, 20 through 25. God created the low and the high, but we reverse it as we sin. We start worshiping each other and ourselves and people. Remember, God says we're made in the image and likeness of God, but we say, no, no, we're in the made in the image of us, by the way. And then we move to birds and then to animals and finally reptiles. It's what the King James used to say, the crawly things. And never forget who was on his belly in Genesis 3 and declared one who would crawl on the belly the rest of his life. Who? Satan. All idolatry, Paul says, leads to worshiping the demonic, whether you believe it, know it, or not. As we move farther and farther away from God, worshiping all things, a perversion of life takes place. The modern notion of humanism always leads to the dehumanization of each other. And so from a broken spiritual reality to idols replacing God, then it says these words, hear it please this morning, God gives us over. God gives us over first in our sexuality, then in our thinking, and then in our whole life. Paul pulls no, punch, pulls no punches here. He points out that sexual perversion in both heterosexual and homosexual expressions are evidence of sin and also needed wrath. Therefore, ready? Verse 24, God gave them, us, over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of our bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That phrase, God gave him over, is what theologians call judicial abandonment. In the passive sense, it's like this. One said, God ceased to hold onto the boat as it was being dragged down the river and just said, fine, you want to go there? Fine. Okay, go. What's scary about this passage is this isn't written in the passive sense. It's actually active. 
God is actively involved. As one said, he does not just simply let the boat go. Rather, he confirms the disastrous course downstream. Here's another way to think about it. God is the rudder. As Chuck Swindoll wrote, God's hand, God hands over humanity to their lust, not merely out of frustration or resignation. What am I going to do with these people? That's not God in heaven. But to accomplish a specific purpose, wrath will lead to salvation if we want it. Paul here chooses to highlight sexual sin as one expression of fallenness, but we all know it's always about sex, money, and power, right? And Paul says that God gave us over to sexual impurity. Sexual impurity is where we get the word immorality, uncleanliness. It's actually the idea of unsterilized in our hospital system. The sin of idolatry always leads to the disruption of God's intention in our sexual relationships. God leads humanity to the point where they no longer act like those made in the image of God, but we end up treating each other like animals. And what's absolutely terrifying about this is that the sexual experience, that one thing that brings us closest to understanding the Trinity within the human context, is broken and hijacked. If there's one phrase that summarizes God's wrath is real and it's needed, it's right here. You want to know what sin is? Right here. We have worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. That's it. That's sin in a nutshell. It's in summary. You can believe it, reject it, whatever you want to do with it, but that's why we're all in trouble, Paul says. Now, if that wasn't enough, Paul then expands on sexual sin by choosing one expression of this, homosexuality. Now, I just want to do this real quick. I know this is complicated. I know this touches many of us sitting here today and watching and listening online. I know it's one of the biggest issues in our culture. And I, know, I just want to say this right up front. I know it needs a much larger conversation than a few verses here. I did a talk in 2004, you can listen at least to that, it's about an hour long, that at least gets beyond this passage. But you know what? We at this moment, no matter who you are, need to hear what Paul says and why he says it. It's important. He says these words, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Hear very carefully what I'm about to say. Men and women in Greek is the word female and male. Paul, one wrote, uses these two Greek words to underscore that the divine creation of human beings in the garden was into two separate categories, and the implication is there is proper sexual conduct that flows from that distinction. It's what theologians call creation ethics, when God is calling humanity to root its lifestyle in creation pre-fall. So here's Paul's biblical logic, agree with it or not, here's what's Paul thinking, and it's God's thinking, by the way, this is scripture. God concludes that Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the model. It's natural for those to be in this relationship because it's instituted by the Creator, male and female. Homosexual relationships, whether between men and women, are against nature because they are contrary to the pattern placed within nature. It doesn't say they're not loving or they don't care for each other. That's not even the conversation. Marriage in a heterosexual sex reflects the image of God, like the Trinity when a husband and wife have, and hear this carefully, mutual sex, joyful sex, sex that is actually godly. They become one, yet they remain different. The two shall become one flesh. They share a fundamental sameness, yet they remain two different people. The same sex act lacks this dimension. Now, hear Paul and hear me very clearly. Homosexuality does not trigger the wrath of God. 
Homosexual action is one expression of fallenness, no greater or less than anything else. I chose this quote below that I'm going to read because I think it brings clarity. It moves us from politics and fear-mongering and homophobia and also the other side of it. Hear it clearly. Paul, therefore, endorses an Old Testament and a Jewish view of this issue. Homosexual relationships violate the order of creation established by God for all people. That's the Judeo-Christian worldview. Believers, hear this, ought to judge our culture by biblical standards and not force the Bible into the mold of our culture. Now, it is laudable to insist on maintaining biblical standards, yet we should not as Christians go farther than the scriptures go, which, by the way, we do all the time, and it's got to stop. The Bible does not brand as sinful homosexual orientation. Did you just hear that? It's only the indulgence on that orientation that is sin. Nor is it clear that the Bible presents homosexual activity as a perversion worse than any other sin all of us sitting in this room have done ourselves. Many Christians teach that, and on Judgment Day, in my opinion, they're going to have a very serious conversation with my boss about this. To be sure, Romans 1 singles out homosexual activity for special attention. But why? Paul's purpose in doing so is because not, not because he regards it as a worse or more serious sin, but because he sees it as a clear illustration of the violation of the created order. In any case, we're called to offer the same love and hope through the gospel to the homosexual community or anyone else. That's what he's saying. Paul says, look, we're under wrath, we've become fools in our mind, we got involved in worshiping idols, whether religious or otherwise, we're now given over in multiple ways of misusing our bodies, both heterosexual and in homosexual experiences, and then Paul says, I'm not done. He also has given our minds over. Verse 28, further, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do not what ought not to be done. Not just the people, he's saying all of humanity. He did not approve, we did not approve of God's worldview, so he gives us over to an unimproved worldview. As one said, humanity put God to the test, judged him, decided against acknowledging him, and thought he was wrong. In response, God puts humanity onto the test, gives us over to lust, and we're proven not to be genuine. Paul, Paul's far from done. He just keeps on going. He says it's not just about idols, it's not just about sex, it's not just about your thinking, actually it's about all life. Paul then outlines the world we all live in. He simply says these words, verse 29, hear them. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters. They're insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They're disobedient, disobedient to their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless. And I love this last word. This last word, in my opinion, describes our world the best. Ruthless. Ruthless. After focusing on idolatry and sexual sin, one said, Paul may have been worried that some readers would go, well, that's just the major stuff and that's not really my problem. So he adds at the end a paragraph of a long list of sins, convinced that at least one of them is going to hit home every person that hears or reads this. We may not be worshiping at the altar of an alligator, but do you gossip? You may think that one's lesser or, or more evil, but God says, no, no, actually both of them are indications that God's wrath is upon you too. And so he ends with one last shot, verse 32, a concluding indictment as he reads the charges. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Now, verse 32, you could preach three sermons on it. I'm not going to, by the way. Uh, Two phrases important. Deserve death and approve. Deserve death, he's talking about spiritual death, hell. That we say, I think I'm right and God, you're wrong. I don't want a relationship with you. Eternal separation. But the other thing is approval. He's saying, not only is it bad enough that we're all doing this as the human race, some of us are cheering other people on and applauding them, saying, oh, we're so excited you're sinning. Keep going. Run the good race of sin. Andrew Murray put it this way. We are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in doing of those things that are going to damn them also. Paul writes these words to a community of Christians living in a city just like us. Now, here's the next words I wrote here. Hmm, that's a lot to take in. The question we need to ask now, because that's where we're going to stop today. I didn't think we could take anything else. Is what is the living God of heaven and earth, the one we're worshiping and we're trying to be faithful to, what is he trying to say to us? Well, hold on, buckle in, because this is what he's trying to say. For you that do not know God through the living Jesus, here's what he says. He gives you the other side of the good news for one reason. He wants you to know how much trouble you're in. You're on the scale and you're really obese and you didn't know it. He wants to come into your life and say, this is the doctor's office and you thought everything's fine. You're not fine at all. You will never need a savior, Paul would say to you, until you know you need saving. But as Paul has said and will say, God's abandonment is not the same thing as rejection. It is the first step in helping us see salvation. Speaking on hell a few years ago, which of course is the eternal expression of wrath, one wrote these words, Hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that heaven and the new earth will be better than we could dream, so hell will be worse than we could ever conceive. Like it or not, the above description is you. It's your children, it's your family, it's your neighbors, it's your co-workers, it's everyone who's ever lived except Jesus. But God does not choose to leave us under his just wrath. Because remember, we put the middle finger in God's face, not him. I love what John Piper wrote years ago when he said this. Sin is not small because it's not against a small sovereign. The seriousness of sin rises with the dignity of the one who gets insulted. The cr- insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect, admiration, and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial. It is downright treason. It defames God and destroys human happiness. Since God is just, he will not and cannot sweep these crimes under the rug of the universe. He feels a holy wrath against him. They deserve to be punished. And that's why he said later in Paul, for the wage of the sin is death. There's a holy curse hanging over all who sin. Not to punish would be unjust. The demeaning of God would be endorsed. A lie would actually reign at the core of reality. But the love of God does not rest with the curse that hangs over all of us. He is not content, hear this, just to show his wrath. No matter how holy he is, he is still love. Therefore, God sends his own son, hear this, to absorb the wrath and bear the curse for all of us. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You want to understand why Good Friday is so significant? You want to understand why Easter is unbelievable? Because this is us. And the one who judged us sent himself in our place and said, and I'll take the curse for you. The question for you who are seekers this morning is this. A, what will you do with this new truth? 
Will you choose just to say oh, that's idiotic, it's old, it's useless, that's dead information, we have so much technology now, we're so much, we're not better, read, read history. We just have iPads now, that's the only difference. That's the only difference. God comes to you who are seekers and says, he shows you how much trouble you're in so you can come to the place where you see that salvation is an option, it's a gift, you could never earn it, and it's done fully and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The challenge for you today and in this series and the rest of your life is, will you turn and will you kneel before the God of heaven and say, your wrath is just, I deserve it, and I need your help, or will you turn with your middle finger and declare, no, you're not God, I am, see you on judgment day. That is what faces you. All of us who are here as Christians, we're not here out of arrogance. Understand. We're not more moral than you at all. We just got on our knees and said, oh my goodness, I need saving. Some people say religion is a crutch, and I say, you betcha it is. And I need lots of them. That's the thing that the Lord asks you today. Now for us who have said yes... The real question is then for us, what is the Lord saying to his living community now? Well, a few things. There are a ton of applications. I think this passage really brings home the question of where we think our authority lies. Is our authority and our worldview from our culture? Is it based in our feelings and our mutual experience? Or does it lie right here? Remember our primary core value in this church is God's word. We believe in an honest engagement with a biblical text understanding and applying it in order to find our place in God's unfolding story, becoming more like Jesus in character and conduct. The Bible is our sole authority for faith, life, and conduct. This passage really challenges us to hold in a world of gray to the truth of God. The question is, who has more authority? But there are two key applications I want to give and that I'm done for us today as I wrestled with God. The first one's about idols. And for a second here, Holy Spirit, I ask you to come right now and make this really clear to our community. Idols are everywhere. And they are anything that's more important to us than God and replaces his love for us and our love for him. Martin Luther wrote so long ago, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that's your God. Idols take two forms in our culture, whether you know it or not. In a so-called secular sense, we worship at the altar of our paycheck for provision, not God. Many of you worship your lifestyle your clothing. You sacrifice your marriage and your children at the altar of called career. Many of us forget that it's not bread or money that gives us our daily bread, but it's actually God. We serve jobs. We serve relationships. We serve positions of status or education or science or money or bank accounts or drugs or alcohol or sex or work or shopping or porn or food, and the list goes on and on. Actually, a host of other coping mechanisms fill our lives, and by the way, all of those are idols because we're not seeking the creator who fulfills us. And then there's the religious side of idolatry. Many break God's heart, even as Christians, knowingly and not by folk religion, spirituality, dabbling in other faiths, spiritual actions that connect you to other spiritual forces other than the living God who's forever praised and elevate you sometimes even to God's place. See, beneath all our technology and our science and medicine, you'll find the average person in our culture involved in all sorts of things, tarot cards, psychic readings, crystals, the new age, witchcraft, horoscopes, outright Satanism, Ouija boards, reincarnation readings, ghosts, haunted houses, levitation, palm reading, seance, tea leaves, water witching, uh, energy healing, Reiki, numerology, idols used as decorations in the garden. Isn't that lovely? Uh, Magic eight balls, astrology, participation in secret societies where we actually take oaths that do not actually bring us to the Lord Jesus but to other things. All of it. The Bible says all of it 
is idolatry. Now, what I find interesting is we at Crothers Creek are praying for revival. We've said before the living God, we are desiring a new move. Well, at the heart of personal renewal and corporate revival and region-wide awakening is when we as Christians repent for going back to worshiping anything else other than the Creator. Now, we're no longer under His wrath that we've just read about because of the work of Jesus, but we still can go kiss the mouth of idols on a regular basis. Luther cries out from history to us today, What do you cling to? What do you trust in? If it is anything other than the God of heaven and earth, you're kissing the mouth of an idol. You say, well, what's the take-home, John? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's very simple. It's very churchy. In your devotional times or in your small group times or however you work with others or yourself to meet the living God, ask him this question. Am I involved in idolatry? Here's my guarantee to you. He'll tell you. Because our God absolutely loves one thing, freedom. And he is desperately, desperately wanting to see many Christians in this community set free from idolatry. Because number one, our life is to give glory to God first, second to be free so the world can see Jesus clearly, right? Idolatry violates all three of those things. His glory, our freedom, and evangelism. The take-home is this, please, You've been a Christian for 50 years. You've been a Christian for two days. Please hear what I'm saying. Go before the living God and say through scripture, through others, through prayer, through whatever. Tell me if I'm involved in idolatry and I will do everything by your power to move away from it. The question is, would you dare even ask the question? God comes to some of us this morning and says, you have never met me. You didn't even know the wrath you were under. And I come and show you this like a good parent because I desire to be in relationship with you. But you have to understand you need a savior. To many others here today, he comes to us and he says, you are actually playing two sides of two kingdoms and it's got to stop. Why? Because I need my glory. You need freedom. And by the way, your family still needs to meet Jesus and they don't see that yet. But here's the last thing and I end with this and then I'll call Ellen up. Wednesday night, a group of us were praying, again, for the move of God in our church. Desperate. Very, very, very similar to what Alan was saying. We were crying out. I was with three uh, different women in a small group at the end, praying for the awakening in the area. And I just finished sort of writing the first draft of this message. And I found myself praying something I don't think I've ever prayed before, not like this. I started praying Romans chapter 1 over our cities. What are you talking about, Jen? Let me just tell you. I went before God and said, they don't even know. They don't know this. We're in our suburbs with our car. They don't know. So I started crying out to God, God, bring holy terror on Durham. And then I caught myself saying it because I felt so un-Canadian and wrong. And then I, and I started asking, well, why am I praying this? And suddenly realized something. You want an application this week? Without any arrogance or pride in your body when you do it.
Go home before God and start crying out and praying through Romans chapter 1 and say, God, may holy terror, not human terror, not, not invented terror, not poison or guilt, holy terror, conviction come on Durham in such a way that this reality comes home and they know they're under wrath. I start praying, God, do this, do this, do this, because they will never come to Jesus until they realize that this is them. It is a dangerous and needed prayer. And every church needs to start doing this. Because until humanity gets to the point where they realize that there is a loving God in heaven who they're made in the image of, that they're made to know and they've walked away, they will never come back. And they will never come back until wrath comes upon them. Every great revival in history, like we shared last year, Dave and I, started much of the time with desperate prayers. And then people in their lives suddenly realizing that the wrath of God is real. I have good news of great joy for all people today. The wrath of God is revealed so we get to meet our Savior. The question is, what will we do with this? So let's pray, and Alan will lead us, and we'll see what God does. God, we've got to admit, as Canadian Christians and seekers, very difficult. And, and if we're going to be really honest with you, God, there's still a lot of questions that come out of this, a lot of big questions, not just the sexuality thing, like that's one, but there's more. But here's our prayer this morning. I pray first and foremost in the name of Jesus that any person within the sound of my voice or watching online who does not know you, I pray that you would literally come on them and show them that what has been said is not invention or dead religion, but it's their reality. And I pray that they'd come to a place where they bend the knee and meet Jesus. I pray that again because I went through the same thing. Our second prayer today as a church is this. God of heaven and earth, we at Crudders Creek acknowledge there's one head and it's not John Thompson or the elders or the staff, it's you. And the question is, are we involved in idols, in idolatry? And if we are, my request as one of the leaders here, as a shepherd here, is that Spirit of God, you'd come on our church this week and you would show us exactly where we're involved in idolatry, that those idols would be broken in Jesus' name, life would be given, repentance would be found, and new freedom would be experienced, and more people would meet Jesus because of it. God, we have asked you to revive our church. We're not joking with you. And for us who are praying serious, we're not joking with each other. Do anything you need to do among us. Expose the deepest part of idolatry in this church. Come get us, we pray. And the last thing we pray is this. God, man, for the salvation of our friends, for the salvation of our neighbors, for the salvation of our coworkers, for the salvation of over 600,000 people in this little corner of your earth, we ask that the terror of God, and I mean that in this sense, in Romans 1, that the wrath of God would not only be revealed, it would be palpably experienced by many, and they would be broken before you and start asking, where do I find salvation from this it's got to happen, Lord. So we just ask this in Jesus' name because it's Christian. Whether it's Canadian or not, doesn't matter anymore. It's Christian. Reveal your wrath. Drag them down the river and then meet your son. Drag them to, down the river and then drag them to your son. That's what we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.